The easiest way to support this podcast is to tell one friend. Thanks. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Our narrative takes us to Florida and the French Protestant Huguenot colonists in 1564. The Satariwa were a Timucua chiefdom centered on the mouth of the St. John's River in what is now Jacksonville, Florida. They were the largest and best attested chiefdom of the Timucua subgroup known as the Mokama, who spoke the Mokama dialect of Timucuayan and lived in the coastal areas of present-day northern Florida and southeastern Georgia. One of the 500 indigenous nations and cultures that blanketed North America, they were a prominent political force in the early days of European settlement in Florida, forging friendly relations and alliances with the French Huguenot settlers at Fort Caroline in Satariwa territory. The Satariwa are so-called after their chief at the time of contact with the Europeans, Satariwa. At that time, the chief's main village was located on the south bank of the St. John's River, and he was sovereign over 30 other chiefs and their villages. Eric Yanis of the Other States of America podcast has graciously agreed to share his telling of this incredible story. Welcome back to the tale of French Florida. When the French landed in Laudonnaire, stepped off the boat, he met a native he seems to have known from his previous expedition, a great leader of a Tamukan chiefdom named Satira, or Satirira, or Satirba. The sources vary, and so my pronunciation will too. But we have to give the French some credit here, because the English or the Dutch, when they would meet a native leader, would just give them a name they were more familiar with. The Dutch might choose Hendrik, and the English might choose Henry. The French at least tried to address people by their actual names. It's likely that Chief Satira saw the French coming, had advance warning of some type, and so went to the pillar to draw their attention. He was a smart man, and it seems as if he took the French to a nearby village that was under his control. Again, the Tamuka may have numbered 100,000, but they were broken up into many smaller chiefdoms of as many as 35 villages each. They were not a united ethnic group. At this point, Laudonnaire and Satira began trading metal objects. The Tamuka, of course, want manufactured metal objects, like axes, knives, things like that. Whereas the Tamuka had for the French raw ores. They had silver ingots. And now Laudonnaire, of course, is very interested in where this came from. And Satira said, well, there's lots of this further to the west, and this is taken from the hills that are in possession of my enemies. And so if you make an alliance with me, we can go to war together, and I'll get you tons of this stuff. Satira then took Laudonnaire by the hand and told him about gold. Gold that was in possession of all his enemies. He was the key to getting all the mineral wealth the French would ever want. If only Laudonnaire would agree to form an alliance with him. Here again we see an example of when the Native Americans are acting contrary to stereotypes about Native Americans. Satira and the Tamuka, they knew Europeans. The Spanish had been through a number of times. They were well aware of the advantages to European technology. They were well aware of what the Europeans desired and were willing to use all of these things to their advantage, whether they had to lie about it or not. In this case, the Tamuka were not the helpless and ignorant but noble people who were being taken advantage of. The French were the one who took the bait, hook, line, and sinker. Laudonnaire agreed on the spot. Yes, we will form an alliance. 
Satira was delighted and declared that if he kept his word, he should have gold and silver to his heart's content. Not too far into the construction of the fort, Satira decides to show up with a grand procession of men and women behind him to show his power. The king was accompanied by seven or eight hundred men, handsome, strong, well-made, and active fellows, the best trained and swiftest of his force, all under arms as if on a military expedition. Before him marched fifty youths with javelins or spears, and behind these, and next to himself, were twenty pipers who produced a wild noise without musical harmony or regularity, but only blowing away with all their might, each trying to be the loudest. Their instruments were nothing but a fixed sort of reeds, or canes, with two openings, one at the top to blow into, and one at the other end for the wind to come out of, like organ pipes or whistles. On his right hand limped his soothsayer, and on his left hand his chief counselor, without which two personages never proceeded on any matter whatever. Among other observations Lemoyne makes of Satira is his many wives and people fanning him on hot days. Satira isn't some well-spoken Algonquian sachem elected by the women in his village, or likewise by the Iroquois people to be a peace chief on the Grand Council. This far south, it seems like there is a larger power dynamic and more social distinction among native cultures. And Satira was a genuine chief or king of sorts. He belonged in a different class than everyone else. And you can hear it and see it in these descriptions. And the Europeans at first were very scared, because again, it appeared they were on the warpath. And no matter how many arms they have, they don't have the numbers that Satira has. Fort Caroline isn't built yet, not completely. And so at first the French recoiled, until it became clear that this was more of a parade, and less of a military invasion. Nonetheless, Satira wanted to impress the Europeans with his show of force, his large numbers, and his musicians. Laudonnaire invited him into the fort, and Laudonnaire decided that he would in return try to impress himself upon Satira. Satira was terribly frightened himself at the sound of the drums and the trumpets, and of the reports of the brass cannon which were fired. Now it's clear from this French account that Satira, once in the fort and surrounded by the machinations of the Europeans, realized he was outclassed. The instruments were louder, they would resonate with one another. There was more organization in terms of music theory. But then there were also the loud cannons, which he probably had never heard before. He probably heard them shoot off primitive guns, but a cannon would make quite an impression around him. He would notice the tools and the different types of structures the Europeans were attempting to build. He deduced that these people could be useful to him as long as they stayed friendly. And so his people began to help build the fort. And after being so welcoming and rendering so much service onto the French, Satira says, I'm going on the warpath against those people who have this silver and gold that you desire so much. We have made an alliance, and so you must go to war with me. Again, Laudonnaire didn't quite understand this part of native culture. If you're in an alliance with really any native group along the North American coast, the East Coast anyway, an alliance infers military support. It's not simply, I trade with you, you trade with me, I'm at peace with you, you're at peace with me. There's also this requirement that you help in times of war. And Laudonnaire, not quite set up, not quite settled in, a little weary of Satira and his accounts of what the outside world looks like in and around now French Florida, supposedly, says no. He says, ah, uh, we're not ready for the warpath just yet. Why don't you come back a couple months, maybe a year later from now. But right now, we're really just trying to get ourselves settled in. Thank you, but no thank you. 
Satira is not happy with this. He doesn't try to hide his emotions here. He is very disappointed. He's very angry. And the French not understanding what this alliance meant may have spoiled all of his plans. And so for Laudonnaire, Satira becomes now a potential problem. The French find two Spaniards living among Satira's people. Probably castaways, runaways, who knows? And the Spaniards say, no, 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 no. This silver isn't coming from far away. This gold isn't coming from far away. Not to the west, not up in the hills, not in the mythical town of Appalachie. This is coming from Spanish shipwrecks off the coast that the natives pillage through. The cracks in Satira's story are already starting to form. Satira and his people decided to go to war with or without the French. However, Satira invited the French to observe his parting ceremonies, his preparations for war. He assembled his men, decorated, after the Indian manner, with feathers and other things, in a level place. The soldiers of Laudonnaire being present, and the force sat down in a circle, the chief being in the middle. A fire was then lighted on his left, and two great vessels full of water were set on his right. Then the chief, after rolling his eyes as if excited by anger, uttering some sounds deep down in his throat, and making various gestures, all at once raised a horrid yell, and all his soldiers repeated this yell, striking their hips and rattling their weapons. Then the chief, taking a wooden platter of water, turned towards the sun and worshipped it, praying to it for a victory over the enemy, and that, as he should now scatter the water that he had dipped into a wooden platter, so might their blood be poured out. Then he flung the water with a great cast up into the air, and as it fell down upon his men, he added, As I have done with this water, so I pray that you may do with the blood of your enemies. A fire was kindled near the bank of the river, and two large vessels of water were placed beside it. Here, Saturina took his stand, while his chiefs crouched in the grass around him. And the vestiges of five hundred warriors filled the outer circle, their long hair garnished with feathers and covered with the heads and skins of wolves, cougars, bears, and eagles. Saturina, looking towards the country of his enemy, distorted his features into a wild expression of rage and hate, then muttered to himself, then hovelled an invocation to his god, the sun, then sprinkled the assembly with water from one of the vessels, and then turning upon the fire suddenly quenched it. So he cried, May the blood of our enemies be poured out, and their lives extinguished. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Satira intended to go to war with one of his neighbors further inland, a chief by the name of Utana, who maybe had more villages under his control than Satira himself. But unknown to Satira, the French already sent some of their own men to meet this Utana. 
Laudonnaire sent out Lieutenant Otigny to discover the truth of these rumors of gold and silver upriver further inland to the west. And the last the French have heard of the lieutenant, he found some natives who didn't have gold or silver, but knew people to the west that did. And so he left with them and hadn't been heard from since. Weeks went by. Obviously concerned, Laudonnaire sent out a sergeant and a captain to find the lieutenant. And when they did find him, he was living in a native village, and he had five or six pounds of silver on him, and seemed in no hurry to be going anywhere. This lieutenant was clearly out for his self-interest. This lieutenant found himself in one of the villages under the control of Utena, the chief they were seeking out. Utena claiming to have 40 villages under his command, and, from the French perspective, believed to have lived closer to the sources of gold and silver, these Frenchmen decided to make an alliance with him. Which brings us back to Fort Caroline and Laudonnaire, because Laudonnaire made an alliance with Satira, and then a couple of his underlings made an alliance with Utena. And Satira and Utena were bitter enemies. Laudonnaire, having no experience with managing two contradicting positions like this, could only stall requests from allies and deny things and lie to keep up the ruse. But in reality, both alliances seem to have canceled each other out. And in fact, to make any of these alliances valid at this point, the French would really have to show up with force to support one side or the other. One of Laudonnaire's weaknesses is his lack of conviction and willingness to let his underlings decide things and have a say in things. But at this time, and in this moment, you need a smart leader who can make singular decisions very quickly. And Laudonnaire is not that guy. And his hand would be forced by the actions of the natives themselves. So Satira went to war with Utna, raided one of his villages, killed a whole bunch, scalped and dismembered a bunch of people, and took 24 captives, bringing them back to parade in front of the French, and of course their own people. The French observed these trophies of war, which of course were the captives, but also dismembered heads, scalps, arms, and legs. These were literal trophies of victory. And this tradition of trading these trophies back and forth among allies is found all the way up and down the eastern seaboard of North America. It's a very common native thing to do at the time. This all takes place in late August of 1564. So things are escalating quickly here. So Laudonnaire says to Satira, Could I have a couple of your captives? We're in an alliance with one another. I would like a couple of your captives. Now, this wouldn't be an absurd request. If they were genuine allies, like I said, things move around. Things are traded as gifts. Even people can be a gift. Satira refused. And he said, when you didn't want to go to war with me, our alliance was over. And Satira had reason to be suspicious. Laudonnaire planned to take those captives of Utena and return them back to him, confirming their alliance and confirming that Laudonnaire was indeed going to choose Utena rather than Satira to be his ally, Utena being probably slightly more powerful and, again, closer to the mineral wealth. At this point, again, Laudonnaire's hand is forced, because now he understands that native alliances depend on military support. He gets this now. So Laudonnaire takes 20 of his strongest men, armed with guns. They go to Satira's own village, the main village. They go into his own house, and Laudonnaire sits in his chair. The Tamuka had rounded structures, not like a wigwam, wikiup, or igloo, more like a cone shape for the walls and the structure itself, with a thatched roof on top. And Satira's dwelling was, of course, at the center of the village and larger than everyone else's. And his chair was a throne of sorts. So Laudonnaire sitting in his chair isn't just a guy sitting in a chair. It's a man assuming the power that the chair is associated with. And this led to a tense standoff where you have 20 armed European men with guns versus thousands of natives without guns. Now this right here could be the end of our tale of French Florida, but it was not. 
While the old men had their standoff, it was one of Satira's sons who said, Hey, I got a couple of these captives myself. These are my captives. I can do with what I please. I'm going to give them to the French. And it was Satira's son who defused the situation and handed over a couple of Utena's men to the French. And while there was no bloodshed, this tense moment was pivotal to the French at Fort Caroline. They were declaring that the alliance with Satira was dead, obviously, and that they were now confirming their alliance with Utena. By early September, the French decided to take these captives to Utena. It seems to me that Le Moyne and the other Frenchmen showed up around the time that Utena was preparing for a war party himself. Just based on the ceremonies, the things he sees, it seems like they were going through the motions of assembling a war party, celebrating the war party, and leaving. Utena, surprised by the return of their captives, reaffirmed their alliance, and he said, You guys should go to war with me. And this time, the party of Frenchmen did. But the enemy wasn't Satira. There was a chief further to his west, even closer to the mineral wealth in theory, named Patano, and Utena wanted to war against Patano. Now, this worked out well for the French. They could go on this expedition, make it further west, reaffirm their relationship with Utena, and then not piss off Satira, who again is going to have his territory surrounding Fort Caroline. So if they're not in alliance with each other, well, at least they could be friendly neighbors. And this arrangement, again, was made by Laudonnier's underlings. Laudonnier's back at the fort. He's not part of this. And so we can't credit him with the decisiveness involved in this decision. The combined force marched west, sneaking into Patano's land. They're banking on the element of surprise, and most early accounts of Native American warfare depend on this. Often in these early records, if a Native American war party can't rely on the element of surprise, they go back home. Because a war party is only one portion of your nation invading another nation. If that other nation has time to rally all that they can, they will outnumber you, surely. Unfortunately, the party is spotted by Patano's men, and Utena's shaman warns him that we should go no further. It's inadvisable. It's foolish. We must return home. The attack must be called off. Utena takes his advice and begins to turn his men around to return back to his territory. But the French say, you coward. They shame him. They shame the chief in front of his own men. Say, you're a coward. Who cares if we're spotted? Don't you see the weapons we have? The element of surprise? Just our general appearance. These people have never seen anything like us before. We're going to win this. Let's go. And then Utena was actually persuaded to follow the French instead of his own shaman's advice. And they went further into Patano's territory. Patano himself being fully aware what was coming down upon him. Now, at this point, you might think the French are being mean and manipulative. But remember, the entire reason the French are on this expedition is Utena said, Hey, you know what? I'd love to help you get that gold and silver. I just happen to have one of my biggest enemies in the way of that. So you help me out with that, I'll help you out with this. Each side is manipulating one another. Utena and the French encountered the first force at the first of Patano's villages. A three-hour battle ensued, but almost immediately the French took out their weapons, their guns, and shot the chief of the village, killing him instantly. So while Patano's forces outnumbered Utena, the psychological advantage of this advanced weapon and these strange-looking people eventually won out, and Utena's forces were victorious. The French pleaded Utena to press forward, head further west, follow up their victory with another victory. Utena urged caution, and this time he won out, and both parties retired. But before returning home, the French observed Utena's men going through their rituals that the Tumuka did when they achieved a victory. They scoured the fields and cut off the arms and legs of Patano's dead men and then as a final insult, would jam an arrow into the limbless dead warrior.
The Satariwa Conservation Area on the St. Johns River is crawling with wildlife, including many rare and protected species, rich in ecological diversity and artifacts illustrating northeastern Florida's dramatic history. Next time, we continue the saga of 16th century Protestant settlements in the territory of Florida. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.